now please put your hands together for a big thrill for me and for you to welcome Anna Pavod. <laughs> well, there's the first stage negotiated. I haven't fallen over, actually. <laughs> the there was the most amazing thing that happened in America when I was sort of, you know, touring, uh, which I don't think sort of authors do so much now, but uh, Bloomsbury sent me on these amazing tours of America. And I was speaking in Washington, and somebody, it was the days of slides, asked me about a picture that was on the screen at the moment. And so I stepped back to see what it was and probably fell off the edge of the platform. <laughs> and what I fell into was the arms, the most magnificent magnolia. Oh, what a landing, what a landing. And of course, I hadn't realized, because I'd not been in the States before, this was my very first intimation that actually magnolias, they're just sort of endemic in the States. And they cut great branches of the things and stick them in pots. I mean, I scarcely even cut a bloom off my magnolias. But um, there it was, me in the arms of Magnolia in Washington. So I'm going to sit now before there's Just a sit disaster. <laughs> You're <laughs> scaring me. <laughs> there we are. I'm safe. <laughs> Wonderful. Anna, welcome. Do you know, I know you, you're based in Dorset. Is this, this, I'm sure this isn't your first visit to Cornwall. No, it's not. Actually, most of the visits we've made have been by boat because uh, my husband and well, I... That's showing off. <laughs> it's not meant to be. But we've had the great good fortune for about 30 years to sail with a, a local farmer who's uh, also a best friend. And um, he's got um, a French boat called an Arpege. And we've sort of nosed around, you know, amongst all the sort of wonderful estuaries here and yeah. Oh, wonderful. And the estuaries tend to lead to the best Cornish gardens they do, as well. They those, do. Those hidden valleys. Yeah, so. and so often we've been trying to get to Ireland where there are also fantastic gardens and you know because of the southwesterly prevailing wind you know you just can't make it and so we've just decided oh for heaven's sake you know let's just stay in Cornwall. <laughs> it's not exactly a hardship. Not the hardest thing <laughs> no. in the world. I was really, I know we are officially talking about landscaping yeah. and, and we shall but I was really startled by last night to hear you refer to yourself as a journalist mm. and in my head and I'm sure in a lot of the heads <laughs> of people here you're a garden writer um, why do you call yourself a journalist I know you you write for magazines and things but what you do is garden writing isn't it yes I suppose um, uh, I suppose it's just because it's your bread and butter work you know uh -huh. it's what you do most of is journalism and you know you respond to deadlines you know you get the piece in on time the right lengths you know and then you're on to the next one. Writing a book for me is very different, partly because they take me such an incredibly long time, mm. six or seven years for a book. It's ridiculous. Right. It's partly because one loves the research so much. There is nothing more wonderful than really getting into something that you don't think anybody's quite written about before and delving and delving and always having those little antennae wiggling around in your mind, you know, waiting for that next little clue that will join two disconnected bits in your mind and suddenly, hey, presto, you know, you've actually gone through to understanding something you didn't understand before. It was like that with Tulip. I mean, ridiculously, ridiculously, apart from Daniel Hall's brilliant monograph in the 1920s, nobody had written about the tulip. And, I mean, I didn't set out, you know, to write mm. this book. I certainly wasn't commissioned by anybody. But I started to grow them in my very first garden, a little sort of bag of, of um, bulbs, a sort of uh, present that my husband brought me back from Amsterdam. And this amazing tulip came up called, I discovered, Gudoshnik. And I was absolutely slayed by this flower. It was so complex, so majestic, so extraordinary in its detail. And not just the outside, which is how tulips unfortunately became used, you know, at the turn of the century. We're talking about the 1900s, not the 2000s. It was used... It was invented by the clever Dutch, who were brilliant marketeers, as a bedding plant. And so people only saw the outside, you know, the main colour, a red bed, a yellow bed. But if you look inside, that's where the real magic goes on and where you get these extraordinary contrasts of colour with the base, with the colour of the pollen even, you know, which can be purple or ochre or a strange sort of khaki. And that's when you really begin to fall in love and say, you are an astounding creature. And that's why, once I got into it, um, you know, the next seven years sort of were the most exciting time, really, of my life, almost. And I wrote the entire book for myself mm. to answer all the questions I was, had been asking. You have to do the research to find the answers. 
I pasted in those 126 pictures and um, my agent actually said, oh, in a bored voice, I suppose I ought to see it. And I said, there's no need, Karadik. <laughs> I wrote it for myself, <laughs> not for publication. And uh, we share an agent, so yes. <laughs> Patrick knows who I mean by Karadik. Not a gardener. Not a gardener. <laughs> a very, very slick man about town and representative of the oldest literary agency, mm. which we're both very proud of. Yes, Patrick, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Anyway, um, he sort of um, s somehow sort of saw something in it, I don't know what, but um, he uh, sort of suggested that we tried three agents, which he chose, and um, that we saw them all on the same day and then had lunch. So that's yeah. what we did. It was a very Karadic day out. It was an a auction very... And then a long yeah, lunch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nothing Karadic likes more than an auction. I teased Karadic about that book, though, because um, if, you are, if you'd asked him in advance, if you'd said to him, Karadik, what I want to do is to write a book entirely mm. about this one plant, yeah. this one bulb, <laughs> it would have been so niche, I'm sure he'd have said it was terribly uncommercial. Mm. And a lot of publishers would have said it, mm. and yet mm. the book was a magnificent success. Mm. I don't want your prizes, blah, mm. blah, blah. It's but I, it proved my, my long-held belief that actually often, because of the fascination of research, mm. Some of the best books are the ones that are follies, mm. in a way. It's, it's a, when an author is just set loose on their own obsession. Mm. Um, and they're not worrying about the market. They're not worrying about publishers. No. They're just pursuing an obsession. It's, it's a tremendous luxury as mm. a writer to be able to do that. And of course, you know, it, it was, in hindsight, very much a matter of timing. You know, we all depend on luck. You know, that is certainly true in all the media. You know, you just sort of come out at a time when... Uh, uh, the time is right, and the time was right because of the dot-com boom. It was, you know, extraordinary to remember that time because it's so recent, the mm. dot-com boom. Mm. But um, an awful lot of the financial uh, writers and the historians were going back to tulip mania to see what was underpinning this extraordinary drive to actually put money where you never would have thought you could ever make yeah, money. Yeah. And that's what was happening with dot-com. And because it got such an incredibly wide coverage in the Financial Times, all sorts of places, um, and also because, let us say, it was the most fabulously produced book that actually, I think, yeah. had ever been seen up to that time. And that was picked up immediately by all the sort of style merchants. And I'd see it, you know, as a set dressing in a window as I was going down Regent Street. And I'd wave and I'd say, hi, how's yeah. things? <laughs> and, you know, the kids would phone up and say, have you seen House and Gardeners this month? And I'd say, no. And they'd say, look at the sofa on page 24. So I'd go to page 24. It was just an ad for a sofa costing, I don't know, zillions of pounds. But there on the seat would be the tulip. <laughs> so yes. It actually did pretty well because it was so beautifully made as a mm. book. It really was. I was lucky. But I think the timing was also good because it came out at a time when there was a lot of spectacular wealth, suddenly. Mm. And tulips, they're a luxury, potentially a luxury bulb, because they don't always come back. And I know a lot of rather terrifying gardeners who just <laughs> will spend thousands every year replanting uh, you know, tulip beds and they just throw, I can't bear throwing things away. No, My garden is full of little, little kind of sad corners where I'm, <laughs> I'm coaxing tulips back to life. Yeah. Um, but actually, Patrick, I've taken all the rejected orchids from my family <laughs> and sort of, <laughs> I'm determined to make them flower again. You're in shelves of amaryllis bulbs that you're keeping going. So, yeah. yeah, but actually, Patrick, I'm rather against that. You know, it has been very much a trend of the last six or eight mm, years, you mm. know, the tulips, you know, huge, great sort of things, particularly in those purples and deep reds yeah, and oranges, yeah. those sort of mixes. They've become incredibly popular and people just buy the collection, plant yes, it and then yeah. chuck it and plant something. Yeah, yeah. But that's wrong. That It's absolutely wrong. Not only is it wasteful, not only is it incredibly disrespectful to the bulb, but actually what people should be planting and looking at is the species because they settle and grow and yeah. increase. You will have the sort of feeling from growing a species that it was very worthwhile inviting into your garden Absolutely. because of everything that it is saying to you in return. I can recommend there's a tiny one, tiny species one called Little Beauty. Oh. And I inherited when my mother died. I discovered she was hiding a whole stash of Victorian flower pots, but microscopic. They were sort of three inches tall, fit for nothing but the occasional cutting, and it turns out little beauty. So oh. I've got about four of these microscopic tulips in each one. Oh. And just once a year, they perform beautifully, mm. and then you yeah. put them in a quiet corner. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, you know, it, it's important that we should reappraise our relationship with this thing. It's mm. not just something that's throw away. You know, it doesn't give us respect for these things if we just chuck it. 
you know, I remember reading a very stern and wonderful article you wrote against um, that vogue for instant gardening. There were television programmes where they would do a makeover mm. and just sort of wipe out a garden that was mm. existing and wipe in a whole new look that you mm. knew was doomed mm. because <laughs> A, the people who owned it weren't gardeners and B, nothing had been prepared properly. No, um, and, and also, you know, you get some sort of presenter saying, we've only got 12 hours to do this garden. I said, you've got the rest of your life, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I found myself shouting at the television, which is not something that I've ever done in my life before, that I just stopped watching. It was just so lunatic. <laughs> and it was giving all the wrong sort of mm. ideas, all yes. the wrong messages. A garden is something that sort of draws you in. You learn through it, but only if you put yourself from the beginning, as I certainly was, um, a sort of um, person who is there to receive, not necessary to impose. And I think actually the best gardens are made by tickling out something from the ground that is in a curious way somehow hidden there. It fits in with what the surroundings are, it fits mm. in with how you're going to move through the space. And it isn't something you draw out on a sheet of paper and just say, right, this is it, yeah. and, and just stamp onto the ground. My mother always said you should look at the weeds, <laughs> because the weeds, <laughs> most weeds have got a, a, a domesticated cousin that mm. will do very well in the soil where the, a particular weed is thriving. Doesn't count for dandelions, <laughs> but it, it's good for Veronica. If you've got lots of speedwell, then Veronica's will do well. She sounds a wise woman, Oh, she was, sadly now gone, but I think of her whenever I'm gardening. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about landscaping? Because it's, well, on, the, because like it's on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> don't if you don't Was, want to, Patrick. No, no, I'm, I'm easy. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love this book. And what, one of the reasons I love this book is it's a great one to recommend to people who don't think of themselves as gardeners, but who love walking, who love the British landscape, who love visiting country house gardens. Because it, it seems to me it's a brilliant analysis of a, a very... British or English relationship to landscape and the way it's evolved. Was this another obsession of yours? Did this book grow out of a, a long-standing obsession like the tulip? Or? It wasn't an obsession. I ought to point out that I'm Welsh, actually, so it, uh, okay, so <laughs> it so happens to the Welsh as well. <laughs> um, I think it was the way that I was brought up. Right. I had two parents who were very typical of their generation in that they were... Um, had brilliant minds mm -hmm. which had never been given the opportunity really to go as far as they could have done right. um, and um, my father was a schoolmaster and became a very very good headmaster my mother was one of those botanists that used to exist who could wander through the countryside she could name the grass in every field mm. that she walked through and when I was a small child she would take my hand and sort of show me you know the square stem on something and say that's labiata remember so Latin was sort of stitched into you from yes, two years yeah. old you know she didn't stint from all that and also she was a wonderful one for walking and I was brought up on the borderlines of uh, Wales and England near Abergavenny with the Brack, um, Black Mountains, mm. Brecon Beacons, most extraordinary landscape and we would go on pilgrimages, not, not in any way spiritual ones, but my mother would say, oh, it's time for the globe flowers. And she would say it in this sort of faintly mystical way. <laughs> and off we would trog, you know, and I'd be perhaps about six or seven, and we'd go up the sugarloaf and round the side of the sugarloaf. The sugarloaf isn't, you know, it's not a mountain in the ways that, you know, the Alps are, but it was 1,200 feet, mm. which when you have short legs, it's quite a long way. And then we'd <laughs> arrive at this sort of boggy place where, I mean, Ordinary marsh marigolds grew all over my uncle's farms. My mother was one of a very large family, one of 12, and so my uncle's farms were dotted all over the place. But the globe flowers, you know, that beauty, the name says it, you know, the size and the shape and the beauty of the incurved um, petals and the colour, which is a pale, pale yellow, absolutely incredible. And then we would go again, you know, on pilgrimages to see the, the sundew because we had both those insect-eating plants mm. growing um, in our, what I call, mountains, in a particular sort of moss. And I recognise that moss still. It was so well stitched into me, this reading of your surroundings. I don't think we ever talked in, you know, sort of, I'm making it sound a bit heavy. It wasn't heavy in, uh, at all, but it was mm. taken as knowledge that, you know, should be put into you. It and was, wonder. She yes. clearly awakened your wonder. Oh, absolutely. Which I think takes... It doesn't happen automatically. I think children sometimes need their attention pointing at yes, something. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think actually also the fact that, you know, um, the schoolmastering sort of element of the household meant that if I asked something uh, about a word, 
uh, the inevitable reply was, go and look it up. Yes. You know, so you were introduced to dictionaries and to actually retrieving information as, again, part of a normal sort of uh, And those early observer life. books. The, yes. The, which which is, I still go to all the time yes. because they are so yeah. precise. And so well laid out. Yeah. But also, Patrick, I think we have to remember that we were growing up, you know, I was a child of the Second World War, and we grew up in circumstances which don't really exist now. Yeah. We had enormous freedom. Um, my, both my parents had been born and so had their parents in the place. You know, it was, a, it was a landscape that was very well known. People didn't shift about in the way that they do now. And also, we were um, moving around. My parents' friends had children the same sort of age. And there was a gang which at its smallest was about six. And when other people came in the summer holidays, would swell to about 10 or 11. And we just roamed all over these foothills and mountains and every winter we built a headquarters out of one of those sort of little quarries that were made to build farmhouses oh. or barns and we would roof it over with fallen branches of this sort of scrub oak that grew on the sides of the hills and we would then put bracken over it and that would be our headquarters you know for that year until it fell apart and then we would start again and we would dam streams and we made maps of our environment and gave it sick place was a place you know <laughs> all our gang yeah. knew because it was where my sort of great friend Jeremy was violently ill after eating something or another <laughs> which we never quite discovered but after a while and when we got slightly older my godfather built us a little wooden hut I mean you know they're all the rage now but this was a real little wooden yeah. hut and it was absolutely you know way up a track in the middle of you know sort of a, a farm that led eventually to the foothills of the Sugarloaf and we used to just disappear there mm. and we used to disappear with flour and oddly enough, a bottle of quinine. I'm not quite <laughs> sure why we had the quinine, but it was sitting there. Malaria, on, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that was our medicine chest. And we used to look at this bottle sitting up on the shelf and think, ooh, we've got quinine. And, some of it sort of <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we'd make twists, of course, you know, all the stuff that people do when they're living, sort of, they think, in the wild. But just occasionally, a parent would you know, turn up with a little bit of something extra. <laughs> but what, but, uh, what, what you're wonderful. describing, though, is that an intimate acquaintance with a landscape, yeah, your absolutely. landscape. But do you think it's necessary to travel in order to have that point of comparison that makes you realise why your landscape is special? Or do you think if you hadn't travelled as a child at all, no, you would still have had that I, sense? No, I, I think travel is astonishing in what it you know, shows you. And most of the most astonishing journeys actually mm. have been made during the last couple of decades. Um, uh, and particularly the seven trips that we've made into Sikkim, where um, I've been able to sit sipping tea with this old general from the Indian Army uh, about half past four in the morning and watch sunrise on Kanchenjunga and not realise that actually, of course, the sun came to Kanchenjunga before it came to us because it's so high. And things like that, mm. absolutely. I mean, you know, I can't describe what it gave to me and what those journeys in Sikkim, because the general was very fierce and wonderful, a Sikh, and he said, if travelers come to Sikkim, they should not come to big hotels built by people who take the money somewhere else. If people come to Sikkim, then the money must stay with the people who live here. And so he had actually set up this extraordinary network of people who perhaps had a little spare room, and that's how you traveled. Um, and walked and stayed in these village houses and ate what everybody else was eating. And it was the most amazingly immersive way to actually understand a country. And we were able at that stage to go for perhaps four or five weeks at a time. And um, it was, uh, well, if you haven't seen the Himalayas, it's difficult to describe <laughs> what they do to you. But if you're a mountains person, which I yeah, knew I was, yeah. then they are just <laughs> extraordinarily sort of... Um, I can't describe mm. it. I'll stop okay. <laughs> before but I embarrass dragging myself. You, dragging you back to landscaping. One, yeah. of the, one of the things that I found so fascinating is, is the way you map out the intimate link between um, the development of appreciation for certain landscapes, mm. notably the lakes, say, um, or the Peak District, and mass tourism, yeah. or the beginning of not even mass tourism, any tourism. Yeah. So the idea of travelling simply to look at a view. 
Yes. Or a, a horrid vista. Yes. Or whatever. Yes, I love um, that horrid. Yeah. Yeah. And and so circumscribed did it quickly become this business of going to the lakes that actually they cut crosses in the turf. And that's where you had to stand to get the only accepted view of whatever it yes. might be. I mean, that form of management of it all yeah. so quickly seems to be astonishing. It is, and, and, really. and when it became almost industrialised around the, the rage for Sir Walter Scott, mm. so when he wrote The Lady of the Lake and suddenly, you know, elements of the landscape he described in the lake were being kind of enhanced mm. and boats were were being guided around the lake to stop at just the right point so yeah. ladies could then sketch the view that they'd read about in the book. Yes. It's very, very interesting. Yes. Do you think that's very something managed. Do you think that's something we're losing or something that Instagram is all too rapidly mm. I don't hoovering know, up? No, Patrick, because I don't do any of the social media, so I'm not really au fait with how that's used. Well, I mean, all I know is we have people. a very, very famous view yep. on our farm. There's a beach with a, a cleft in the rock, mm. in, the, in the cliff, mm. through which you can see mm. the sea called The Song of the Sea, and it, it's, a, it's a famous, it's, it's been in guidebooks since mm. heaven knows when, but increasingly what happens is I get walkers, um, often from overseas, who turn on their phone, mm. find, find an image of mm. it on Instagram, mm. and say, I, I need to photograph this. And I say, well, you've got a photograph of it on your phone. <laughs> no, no, I need yes. to photograph this. Yeah. So in a funny sort of way, this relationship with landscape, it's still there mm. in the media. The medium is changing by which we record mm. it. But I think what, what, what's still going on is this need to put yourself in the view or on the hill. Yeah, I don't feel that. But that's partly of a general feeling that actually, you know, we need to step back from all this mess we made. <laughs> you know, when I see this sort of ad in the paper saying, your Robin needs you, I say, no, actually, Robins are incredibly competent <laughs> at looking savage after themselves. Savage <laughs> little things, warlike little things, always fighting, and they can feed themselves very well. He doesn't need me <laughs> at all. <laughs> and things like that, I feel that, you know, we are always so much in danger of thinking we are so important we don't use our eyes enough we don't watch enough and you know um, if we just kept out of their way they would do a lot better <laughs> it often seems to me but anyway that's rather a, a, a difficult point of view to uphold I know but it's fascinating to me hearing you talking about your mother and the way she awakened your love of landscape mm. in that book and yet this book the curious gardener which I can highly recommend is my this has been my lockdown bedside book <laughs> because it takes you through the whole of the gardening year and I'm, I, I limit myself to this month's <laughs> month. I can't read the next month until we're there. You are but good. there is a very, very funny introduction to this, which I'm going to ask you to read, <laughs> right. where you make it quite clear you were not one of nature's gardeners no. as a child. Um, I think it's partly having parents who were. You know, they were always bottom up in the borders when I wanted to actually, you know, <laughs> sort of be doing something infinitely more exciting. Because I grew up on the outskirts of a small town called Abergavenny, and there happened to be two picture houses in town, the Colosseum and the Pavilion. And of course, in the 50s, you know, when you were sort of 10 and 11 and things, there was nothing more exciting than the thought of going to the pictures, but who wanted to take you? And you weren't allowed to go on your own. So there was always a slight sense of resentment that um, their chief interests were certainly not with me, but were with the herbaceous borders, which were very much the thing in the 50s. My mother grew marvelous lupins. Can you bear to read us <laughs> yes, that passage? I, it is, um... I think I'd better get my glasses, <laughs> Age. Uh, there we are. No, um, they were meticulous. Um, my father particularly, he had the most amazing troughs. In those days, it wasn't difficult, you know, to find lovely old stone old, troughs yes. and, you know, bits and left over from ones, castles. And and, yeah. We didn't have any lead ones. They were all stone. But, you know, a lot of castles had, you know, sort of beautiful carved bits and pieces. Um, and, um, you know, they just sort of were lying around yeah. um, uh, in farms. So um, he grew most beautiful gentians, which uh, I've since discovered are not easy to grow. <laughs> and he also made an extraordinary collection of sempervivums. And as a child, I was, you know, used to look at this rockery. There's another 30s thing. My father started <laughs> gardening in, his, when, in the 30s. And, you know, there were all these things they didn't sort of do much. They didn't seem to sort of grow much. They didn't sort of <laughs> seem to flower very much. And I thought, why on earth does he do that? But I now understand, you know, the wonderful symmetry of a sempervivum. You know, it's perfection, it's sort of neatness. So I find myself sort of saying, sorry, Pa, you are absolutely right. <laughs> and where that <laughs> message is going, who knows? But anyway, it, perhaps it takes a little bit of age. So I'll start. I used to hate gardening. 
I grew up with parents who were always doing something in the borders, lurking round the edges of their haughty conversations. I couldn't see the point of it all. Gardening seemed to be one long roll call of disaster. Black spot on the roses, black fly on the beans, canker in the apples, pigeons among the peas. Why did they bother, I asked myself. The shops were full of excellent vegetables and blight-free flowers. The garden always seemed to get in the way of things that I wanted to do. There was no end to its demands. Hedges needed cutting week after week, as did the lawns. Weeds grew with hideous persistence between the big, flat flagstones of the terrace by the French windows. So family expeditions became nerve-wracking affairs for me. Would my father, who had promised to take me to spend my pocket money in town, finish hooking out those weeds from the terrace before the shop shut? He didn't believe in weed killer. Could I drag my mother away from the lupins and towards the Colosseum cinema, where there was a film she'd said I could see? As I was a country child, trips to the town had huge significance. Glamour hovered round the hissing coffee machine in the town's Italian cafe, not over the ancient stone troughs where my father cultivated alpines with exquisite care and attention. Gentians were her speciality. So there it is. We were given gardens, of course. I mean, you know, so often the children of gardening parents are. And um, it was one of the sort of things that I never quite got over, that my favourite fruit is pears. And there was a pear tree in my brother's garden. He was an older brother, of course. And there was an apple in my garden. (laughs) And nobody had actually ever explained to me what shy fruiter meant. (laughs) It was just one of those things. And of course, shy fruiter meant that this was a beauty of Bath apple on which very rarely could I even pick a single apple. So it was all a little bit sort of disappointing that very early stage. But gosh, it didn't half come back when we had our first, I won't say garden, but um, the second thing my husband said to me uh, after he'd asked me to marry him was that we were going to live on a boat. So starry-eyed, I said, how lovely. And of course, it was, it was jolly hard work. We had this Thames sailing barge, a magnificent beast, you know, fully rigged the whole lot. And we brought it from its uh, home near Colchester all the way up the Thames, tugged by uh, a tug. And uh, (laughs) the tugman's name was Bunny Birthright. Would you believe it? (laughs) It was like a sort of happy families game. But anyway, we found this extraordinary stretch of the uh, Thames near Shepparton and um, moored our Thames sailing barge there. The woman who um, ha- had the house sort of opposite over a field said she had riparian rights. We didn't know what those meant either, but <laughs> she seemed to think that it meant we could dump our, not dump, very securely moor uh, our barge there. And my mother, of course, arrived with flags to put on the water's edge. She arrived with a rose for us to plant over the palings, snowdrops to plant in the bank. But that first winter, gosh, you don't half learn fast, this amazing torrent came down the Thames and tore away all her flag iris and brought, of course, all the usual flotsam and jetsam bedsteads and all the rest of it. And then at Easter, people came out in their droves to walk uh, the, uh, the river bank, which was very lovely, and picked all the snowdrops. And then they introduced a horse into the paddock where the railings were, and he ate the rose. So <laughs> <laughs> and my mother said, Pots, perhaps, on deck? And, of course, my husband is quite nautical. I mean, a pot? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely no pots. (laughs) So it wasn't until our first house that I really started, yeah. And then the arrival of your own children. Was that a conflict with your, by then, your gardening well, <laughs> it's a conflict with you, everything. I think the arrival <laughs> of one's children is such a shock. <laughs> My mother used to tie us to a tree, I think, yes. when we were quite small. Yeah, that's what so we did. she could get on with the weeding. That's and, what we did on yeah, the barge. Yeah. We had one of those little sort of leather you know, harnesses. Yes, I had one of those with a little, a little deer yeah. on the middle. Sweet, yeah. very yeah. sweet. Anyway, this length of rope was carefully <laughs> measured out from the mast to the edge of the sailing barge. And one end was tied onto the little harness and the other... <laughs> And was tied onto the, onto the main mast, and there she sort of shuffled about, uh, unable, we hope, to fall overboard. <laughs> but you, you then write um, wonderfully honestly about uh, later motherhood escaping the children into gardening. Mm. Could you talk a bit about what the appeal of gardening, you think what the appeal of gardening is to so many people, even people who aren't specialist gardens, mm. that, that, that it somehow gives them a... I mean, uh, for me, it's always seemed deeply therapeutic, mm. but I think part of it maybe is to do with the repetitiveness of it or with the almost mindlessness of some of the tasks. I think, I think it's a huge range of things, mm. and that's why it's so wondrous to do it, because whatever your mood, there is something you feel like doing. 
you know, if you've had a, a sort of rather bad altercation with a traffic warden, it's a great time to prune roses, you know, because the harder you prune them, <laughs> take that, yes. yeah, the better they are. So that's what I like, the fact that it gives you so many opportunities to actually, you know, just sink into something. You don't think it through. And I've never sort of, I mean, it's been a huge thing over lockdown, this therapeutic business. And of course it is, but I, I've never thought of it in those terms. No, I just be conscious. No, I think it's just, I love, I never wear gloves. I love the feel of earth. I love having my hands in the earth. I love the fact that so often you're in such close contact with things that are growing and that you've planted, and you can see every single minute detail of what's going on mm. with them. I mean, Christopher Lloyd, who is a great mentor to me and a very, very dear friend, um, he always said, use your eyes, Anna, use your eyes, if I said something that he thought was silly. <laughs> and he'd never tell you the name of the plant if you didn't write it down. So he was absolutely right. Mm. Using your eyes is the most important thing of the world when you're gardening. You know, when you start to garden, you hope for rules. If I do this and this, then this will ensue. That's not how it is, as yeah, you know. Yeah. What you've got to do is use your eyes, sort of uh, just understand a little of what they're asking for. For me, the first point was always to find out where they grew in the wild, not the thing you were growing, which would always have been a sort of yeah. cultivar of some wild thing. But that gave you a very good indication, a very good start of what they might like in your own garden. But I think also um, there is a very calming effect, particularly at this season. September, in many ways, is one of the most wonderful months to garden because the light is so extraordinary. And actually with landscape, even more so than with gardening, it is the effects of the light that are so extraordinary. The way that light filters through trees, the lengthening of shadows over a piece of grass, the extraordinary sort of dampness that you get in the air, the wonderful mist and those trails and the way they thread themselves in and out of trees in the valley. Um, I think um, taking time is another important thing to really appreciate gardening. Uh, just to notice things mm. in detail, not necessarily to do anything with them. Although when I was doing a weekly column, of course, I was often, you know, wanting to really scribble stuff down that it, I could see that that might make quite an interesting column. So a column is very good. I mean, it's not mm. something that many people are, uh, have had the luck to be given. Um, and I was given it, most surprisingly, when the independence started, um, I went uh, by invitation to have lunch with somebody I'd never met before. And we had a very hilarious lunch. There were three independent people there and me. And I really enjoyed it. It was really good fun. And then there came a letter um, in the days when you know everything was done by letter with a heading of the independent offering me the coast of gardening columnist <laughs> with a weekly column. And I thought, in private eye style, shumbish day, surely. Yes. We hadn't talked about gardening once. But what they were looking for at the Indy was people, and I don't mean to sound in any way boastful, but people who had to, uh, the ability to engage somebody, whether they were a specialist in that area or not. And it was true of the wine writers, the food writers, everybody at the Indy was engaged to actually just do a piece that was fun to read. Mm. Uh, and um, that's how it happened 30 they, years I mean, later. And they certainly, I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, are these filleted yeah. columns? I mean, they Just certainly are very entertaining still. And of course, the beauty with garden writing is it doesn't go out of date. No because the same plants are available. go um, back to what we were doing 30 years but ago. But you did that for an astonishingly, I mean, three decades mm. of a column. I um, know. Well, you see, you probably, well, you know, it's only if you've got an unhealthy interest in the print media that you might remember, <laughs> but um, the, the indie was astonishing when it started and it had a huge sort of uh, joie de vivre and esprit de corps amongst the people working on it. It was just extraordinary, and Andreas was, was very, very good. But... Um, the thing of print media is that it's completely different to, you know, the underground stuff. And they suppose that I would just go underground when they stopped the print edition and just did digital. And I said, no, it's not the same thing at all. I'm off. I'm going. I've had a fantastic ride for 30 years. Um, and, um, you know, that's it. So um, and I've never regretted the decision. Although one does regret the impetus to actually ferret about a bit in something that you think, oh, that's interesting, you say to yourself. But then, of course, another seven interesting things crop up that day <laughs> and you never really get down to the sort of detailed work that you need if you're going to write about it in 1,300 words. And I'm fascinated, did, did you keep a, an index of what you had written about yeah. in which week? Yeah, so absolutely. So you didn't do you know, the same, a version of the same article on no. whatever, cyclamen? <laughs> I, I might not have done that but for Christopher mm. because um, I wrote to him and I said, look, Christopher, the Indies offered me a, a weekly column gardening. What do you think? Should I do it? Because there was a part of me which seems extraordinary now that didn't want to be shut into a box because yeah. I've been writing about all sorts of other things, you know, about 
especially about sort of um, old buildings and, and landscape and travel and all sorts of stuff, you know, I, I was writing. And I didn't want to sort of feel that I was only seen as a person who knew anything, you know, uh, uh, about anything except gardens. But he said, well, if you do it, take it seriously, which was very, very good advice. And if you do it, keep an index. So it was he who actually just gave me the ground rules, and the taking it seriously was really important. This wasn't just something that you just tossed off. This was something where you put maximum amount of work and thought, and you know, if necessary, research into it. Yes, mm. I think he had a column in Country Life for a long time. He didn't did. He? Yes. Yeah, he was a very good writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah he uh, was marvelous. very uncompromising. Mm. How about the relationship between writing and gardening? Because, of course, one oh. of the things that would certainly would panic me if I was asked to do uh, any kind of column. Especially a weekly column. Was, yeah. Well, when else? When am I going to fit in my other writing mm. or my indeed my gardening? Yeah. Was there a worry that it would impinge on? Um, only because other I was um, very. It, it came the the indie started in '86, and by then the right. children were mostly not at home. You right. know, so that was one much easier thing. You weren't and tying I got them to trees anymore. <laughs> <though>. I, <coughs> I got into the habit of always doing the column on a Friday, uh, and if it needed a visit, then that would have been done earlier in the week. Mm. And so there was a very clear block of time that was column and a very clear block that was other things, which is how I managed to do Tulip. And then later on, when you know, doing a book became an absolute routine with me, I had to have a book on the go, my mind needed, as soon as I was getting to the end of one, I was already thinking about the next one and ways to treat it. And then I started going somewhere else. I would right. go up particularly to a cottage in uh, Wester Ross at Atterdale. And I would go there, up there for two or three weeks at a time. And I'd see nobody. Uh, my only companions were stags, which who in October were fighting, which is incredibly exciting. And um, I, I would just literally uh, get up, you know, make some food, sit down and work. And then flop with a drink in the evening. And, you know, I did that just because that was what that time was for. But also with landscape, it fed the book as well. Right. Because it was so exciting. I adore Scotland. And you know, the wonderful way that these great waterfalls suddenly were energized by rain. And I would stand at the door of this cottage and there was an amazing waterfall fore and aft, but they only, they only arrived when it rained. You know, so you got this tremendous excitement when it was pouring with rain, when most people in Scotland would say, oh, it's another rotten rainy day. I'd say, yeah, bring it on, bring it on. You know, and also not only the big, big, you know, sort of uh, waterfalls like these, the thunder of it, the excitement, and I would be inside and I would hear it building and I would wait and give myself the huge excitement of opening the back door and then just sort of seeing <laughs> it literally practically on the doorstep, not so close that it would flood, but, but also, if later I went out in the car, you'd see that the whole of the sides of the mountain had broken into these rivulets, these rivers, and instead of just being a sheet, you know, of the wind and, and the heather and the bracken, you'd get all these amazing patterns of water running, and they might be gone by the end of the day. Waterfalls are very much things you have to snatch mm, while they're there, mm. yeah. But before I throw you to the mercy of the audience, who I'm sure have <laughs> lots of questions for you, um, can we just talk a bit about uh, I mean, I hesitate to say British even, a cluster of nations that we mm. are and our relationship to gardening because visitors from abroad who've come over to stay with us during the summer, especially or the spring, always get drawn along by us to various mm. yellow book gardens mm. and always say, what is it about mm. the British and gardening that you seem, it seems to be a national, not just an obsession, but a kind of, it's almost like the NHS. It's, it's a thing. It's a very nurturing and health-giving thing that we do and the yellow book scheme is a, a clear kind of mm. symptom of that if you like do you think it's a peculiar thing to this this country I, I, I or think does america <laughs> or france do they have equivalents I, I think quite honestly given our advantages we'd be mad not to garden we are staggeringly lucky in where we are in the weather yeah the gulf stream you know sort of in the incredible variety of soils that the tiny little place that is yeah, the British yeah. Isles has. Mm. If you travel from down here, you know, up to Scotland, the amount of geology that you go through and therefore the amount of different plants you can grow, the fact that we are generally benign, you know, we've had a desperate uh, frost this spring, which absolutely broke my heart. The timing heart. was really cruel, oh. yes. I mean, my Cornus controversa variegata, you know, it just, browned, dead, mm, just yeah, like that. Yeah. And it was the most incredible thing in the garden. Mm. And it finally got it through to these amazing tears. And I used to look at it and say, you are beautiful. Thank you. And then it's gone. Smashed. Oh, yeah. oh. But it's a gardening opportunity. Yeah. 
Yeah, but they're, Once you they're grieve, quite you difficult have to, to get going, those corners You have are. to work through the grief. <laughs> and also, have I got time left, Patrick? That's another thing you have to think. Yeah, you yeah. know, you, when you're young, yes, you you're to Mulberry, plant and, yeah, it when you're young. You, you've yeah. got all these decades ahead. I haven't. And, right. you know, so I, these friends that have been with me and who I have admired unreservedly and thanked and patted, um, I don't photograph them. I'm just sort of, you know, not one of those people that really sort of does that. Mm. Um, I, I, I take down phrases in notebooks, but that's because of, you know, being a writer. Um, but no, I, I wanted that to stay very, very much. Fortunately, my rarest magnolias got through okay. Right. Um, one dropped all its buds and, and terrible, terrible. You remember how everything was just browned on the branch? Yeah. And, um, you know, um, I, I thought it wasn't going to come through, but it did. So there we are. Yes. I've got that. Well. I, think, I think we do it because not all of us can paint or sculpt or write music. It is a way of expressing an artistic side to our nature, which is not as difficult, it seems to us, as all those other things. We are very fortunate if we live in a place that gives us a patch of soil or a greenhouse or a biggish sort of balcony to work on. You know, um, I think of that time and time and time again. I mean, you know, the barge was the closest we got to being without a garden. And that just lasted, you know, three years until I was having another baby and tying two to the mast mm. seemed to be a bit much. <laughs> um, but, I mean, you know, when I think of the numbers of people who haven't even got sort of a window box, gosh, mm. how do they survive? How well, that's why survive? lockdown was so cruel. You yeah. suddenly realise yeah. how dependent people were on public gardens Absolutely. and parks. Absolutely. I think the National Garden Scheme is a wonder. And I think a great deal um, of people really like having strangers in their garden. Mm. They like a sort of validation, I think, that it gives them. Um, I don't think I ever wanted another deadline. I've never opened a garden no. that I've gardened, <laughs> but that's partly because, you know, of the journalism and always having deadlines that you have to meet and, you know, and the thought of promising the year before to do something the year after, knowing what sort of weather we have. And knowing, I live in West Dorset, and it's been tremendously exciting doing this, uh, I say, recent garden. Our new garden, I still say, we've been there 18 years, but, you know, sort of it's still <laughs> new to me. We were nearly 40 years in the, in the rectory. And um, I think the excitement has been, for me, the fact that I am on some magical stuff called green sand. I've only ever gardened on clay, which is very giving once you get used to it. It's very sustaining. You can get a lot out of clay soils. But here's this magic stuff that I didn't understand when we first took this place on because it was so friable. It seemed to be rather thin. It hadn't got much going for it. And, and I sent it off to the RHS for analysis, which I never thought I'd do in my life. It came back with flying colours in all departments. Mm. It's brilliant. And it, you, know, you can get an absolute storm of rain and you can go out and garden in half an hour's time. It's just all drifted away. And I, I garden also on a very steep slope. Um, <laughs> and I remember the first time we took our kids, we have three daughters and 12 grandchildren, and uh, the eldest daughter was standing in the yard watching me sort of goat my way up the slope, hanging on to sort of bits of, <laughs> bits of elder as I was going, because it was pretty much a wilderness. And she said from the yard, perfect for your old age, Mama. <laughs> and of course, I'm now realising that, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'd never think of that being a reason not to do it, no. You're just a bit more careful about where you put your feet down. <laughs> It's as easy going up the slope, I find it's coming down yeah. again and making sure you don't Absolutely, uh, absolutely it is. But it has given so much, this garden. And in many ways, the rectory garden, absolutely, well, the rectory itself obsessed us, really, all of us. All the girls were married from there. And it was sort of just some, one, one of those places that really got into your bones. But it dictated terms in a big way. You went out with your fork and you thought, oh, I think I'll perhaps pass here. And uh, you'd start sort of fiddling around amidst all weeds and things, and there would be cinders. There'd been a path there before, and it kept doing this to us. Oh, kept saying, well, you might have the idea, but it won't be half as good as mine. <laughs> and, um, and this new place was just, you know, a simple 1830s farmhouse. Mm. And never anything much done with it. Farmers aren't really great gardeners, usually. I know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no time. <laughs> so we've made that one from scratch, mm. and it's mm. been really, really good fun, and I've learned a lot. Yeah, Wonderful. I really have. I love it. Mm. Would anyone like to ask Anna the first question? Put your hand up and a microphone will come to you. Any withered <laughs> foliage can be offered no. up as well, I'm sure. <laughs> the microphone is coming your way. If, it, if it's a bit damp, it's because it's been wiped with an antibacterial... What's his name? This is a question I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you whether you talk to your plants, but in view of what happened to your corners... <laughs> 
yes. maybe maybe it's not an apt question. Um, I thank them, actually. Um, I don't say, oh, you poor thing, you don't look too well. I just, but I do um, note that. I mean, that's another wonderful thing about um, having gardened for a long time. You can sort of sense, uh, with trees particularly, and, you know, I have to find myself checking it if I'm in somebody else's garden, you know, but I say to myself, my own garden, that tree's going back. You know, you just sort of get a sense about things. And if you can pick that up soon enough, with trees often you can't because it just means that there's something, you know, terminal happening there. Um, and you put your hand on its trunk and, you know, if it's not cool, then you really know that uh, <laughs> it's in for, a <laughs> in for the, uh, the, the, the terminal chapter of its life, which is sad. But no, uh, mostly it's thanks. It mostly, you know, something comes out like the crinums. Oh, there has never been a year like this for crinums. I grew them a long time ago and discarded them because of the vast amount of leafage. Mm. But it's all about placing them. It was my fault, not theirs. Uh, I was putting them in the wrong places and therefore the leaf used to, you know, flop all over other stuff and get in the way. But gosh, they have been stunning. And I grow one called Crinum Murii, M-O-O-R-E-I, oh, with the palest, palest pink blooms. I mean, you wouldn't even call it pink. And these vast, great trumpets. And of course, they have these huge stems, so never need staking, they never fall over. And they just suddenly, you realize that they've come through, because you don't notice that process. And you see these tight, tight buds on the top of the stem, and then whoosh, there they are. So I've been thanking the crinums a lot. Mm. <laughs> so lots of praise. <laughs> lots of praise, yeah. Works for the kids too. <laughs> there was another hand up just now. Where yeah, Charlie. Um, oh, over here. Yes. <laughs> now, I, I ought to say that here you have Charlie Hopkinson who... No, no, yes, <laughs> I will say... It's my turn to speak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th thank you very much for a great talk. I wanted to ask you about uh, the industry of garden writing. Is it, is it healthy? Because whenever I go into a bookshop, the cooking section is huge, mm. and the gardening section is sort of hidden away around the back. Mm. And I wondered if it's the sort of industry you'd want your children to go into, for instance. Is it healthy? Does it have a good future? That's a really interesting question, Charlie. It, I'm not sure it's one that I can answer well, because... Um, we were lucky, you know, in being around in the 80s when actually, you know, gardening was astonishing and, you know, it was just an absolute fountain of stuff and uh, there were wonderful articles, you know, being written, a lot of really, really good writers. Um, I think we've got to accept that now an awful lot of stuff is done online, you know, an awful lot of stuff are doing um, podcasts and mm. they're doing, what are those other things that people just do for nothing? Blogs. Um, blogs, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They do all this stuff for nothing, and I think that's bound to have an effect on the newspapers saying, well, you know, why, why are we paying for this stuff? Mm. Um, I'm still writing. I do the odd stuff for the Sunday Times, um, but uh, you're absolutely right. You know, I in terms of the books that come out, there are very few now that you say, gosh, I must have that one. Um, you know, it's... Um, and I think it is because uh, the social media have taken over an awful lot of image-making and also the blogging and podcasting, all the rest of it has taken over a lot of writing. I, I, I don't, as I say, uh, you know, I, I don't follow anybody or I don't understand any of that. So uh, and it's partly because we actually have most appalling broadband, which people say, oh, poor you. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> affect me in the slightest, quite honestly. <laughs> if I want to speak to the kids, then I like to pick up the phone, you know. <laughs> but don't you feel that on one level it's about uh, the need for advice and trust? And just as with cookery, at some point in everyone's life, they think, why is this plant dying? Why can't I do this? Yeah. A, a I, I, you see, the thing is that, you know, um, when, when you've been around for decades and decades and decades, mm. um, there are, you have less mentors. They keep yeah. dying. And, mm. you, you know, who do you go to? You know, but they, they, <laughs> I mean, they do. New ones <laughs> pop up, though. They I mean do. But, you know, Tim Richardson is one of the few people that actually uh, I really highly rate yeah. as a writer. I think he's fantastic. He's unafraid. Um, he sees his subjects that are complex to write about. I think he's absolutely excellent. Ursula, who is a mate, so <laughs> perhaps I shouldn't go, but she writes very, very well. Right. But there's so few people really to whom I talk about gardening. Mm. I have a dear friend in Scotland, Colin Hamilton, he was a sort of gay couple who were antiquarian booksellers and very, very good gardeners. I talk to Colin about gardening, yeah, because he's my age and you know we, we just sort of share a sense of humor. Um, but there's very few actually. Very few. 
And um, you don't see people hammering on the door in the way that our generation did to sort of get, an, get an entry because they don't need to. They just go onto their own machine yeah, and yeah. launch themselves as a podder or you know, a blogger or whatever. <laughs> 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 and some of them, I gather from our kids, uh, are hugely successful. And, um, but it's often intimately tied to a product. Yeah. They're plugging a product or a yeah, particular or a garden, thing. Yeah. Yes. Mm, yeah. Mm. No, it's a, it's a different world. <laughs> There's a question from the Yes. Room. From a keen gardener. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, yeah, you're on. You're on. It's Sorry. okay. Um, the environment, generally, is going to come, is coming to the top of the agenda all over the world. Um, gardens, of course, are a very important part of the environment, and plants and what happens in gardens and so on, what happens in nature generally. The young, particularly, are interested in this, and. Politically, I think they will become a bigger and bigger important constituency for governments to um, try to woo, in a sense, the young voters. And they really are concerned about the environment. Now, gardens and gardening and the care for plants and interest in them and so on is all part of that. But I should have thought there should be a renaissance over the next coming decades. Well, do you how do you feel about that? Well... Complex, conflicted. And you've only, you've only, got, only got five minutes. <laughs> and I've only got five minutes. No, I think the problem is, as always, that single issues tend to make things look much more straightforward than they are. And I think the interrelationship of gardening with all sorts of other things that are going on um, makes it very difficult to say, you know, we can do this, we can do that. Certainly, um, the wildlife thing was uh, an important thing to happen. But people seem to have seized on the fact that a hedgehog won't survive unless they build it a house. Well, you know, I think the thing is, again, we actually uh, are not going to be able to do much for the hedgehog just by building it a house. You need to actually go a little bit deeper into all that. And I was thrilled to find a mother hedgehog and four babies in our front border. Of course I was. But they weren't there because of anything that I was doing for them. Mm. They had just actually found a safe corner, warm, against a south-facing wall, and were using all the dead leaves of the iris, the one that grows in North Africa that comes out in the winter. Its name is gone. You will know it. begins with an A. What is no, that iris? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Um, but um, it, 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 it has you know, lots of dried leaf, and they'd been plucking those and weaving this marvellous nest for themselves, you know, just next door to the iris. Um, I, they've sort of gone off on a ramble now. You obviously so don't have badgers in no, your garden. We have had huge badgers, but let's not get on to that. Yeah, yeah. No. Because they um, eat hedgehogs. Exactly. Which is the a, only a animal that can. Yeah. 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 But um, I think there are simple things that we can do. Um, but uh, when I was chairing the gardens panel of the National Trust, uh, the National Trust were very much at the forefront of, um, you know, no peat. And uh, they were shipping peat-free composts into their properties in Northern Ireland. Now that seemed to me actually not very wise because the amount of fuel and you know sort of environmental things that you were using shipping peat from England to Northern Ireland, um, and peat free uh, to Northern Ireland, uh, would completely outweigh um, sort of any uh, advantages given that so much of Ireland is you know, producing these peat bogs anyway. You know, it wasn't actually going to have such a huge effect there as it might in other places. I think the complexity of it is an incredibly interesting question. I think we can certainly not use, I haven't used insecticides or fungicides for, I can't remember, decades. Um, and so we can stop using those sorts of things. Um, I think probably we have always been slightly inclined to overwater. Uh, so we can certainly save water. I have to now because we have our own water supply and it won't go uphill. <laughs> the pressure isn't as important. And you learn that if you actually water something in well and do your planting from October through till March, then things will settle pretty well without needing to be um, kept going with extra water all through that year. I think it's um, small adjustments will have uh, an effect. And I think you're right. But I think the problem is that gardening, as I said earlier on, doesn't have immediate sort of, um, if I follow these rules, this will happen. Mm. It is a matter of time and having the humility to actually just notice stuff and stash it away in your own mind and say, well, I've always read 
but that's so, but it doesn't seem like that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have time for one last question. There's somebody, oh, two last questions. Martin first, and then the lady in the front. I'm sorry, that was such an inadequate reply. It was a really good reply, and it was very <laughs> thoughtful. Just to follow up on, on the previous question, and referring back to a comment you made earlier about the chore of cutting the grass, where do you stand on? Oh, I don't cut the grass. Never have. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, do you want to see lawns looking pristine and short, or are you one for letting them go? Well, needs must. Um, it's very, <laughs> very labour-intensive mowing. I don't do it myself. My husband does it, um, and very much, you know, when he feels like it. So, um, uh, and we have got because we have the great good fortune to have a garden. Uh, that we've made, uh, sitting within 20 acres of unimproved uh, grassland, which is, a, you know, supposed to be a nationally important sort of, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> Not habitat, but... Um, Site of specific Yes, uh, we've got one of those too. <laughs> yes. Um, so we have an awful lot of wild um, uh, stuff that only needs to be grazed by sheep at very specific mm. times. In the garden, we have one bit of lawn in the front of the house. Um, a lot of the lawn um, that used to exist uh, is now wild grass because we actually made a very steep slope into a series of terraces and banks and all the banks just grow up and, uh, and uh, they used to be sized when I had somebody who could manage the scythe, which was perfect, noiseless, and it sheds the seed much better. We haven't got that now, so they have to be done with, um, with an, um, noisy electricity, not electricity petrol. Um, so yes, we've got an awful lot of long grass. So I don't particularly feel the personal need to leave the little apron in front of the house uh, go wild as well, no. The problem is that it's never clearly stated enough that grass left to grow long looks enchanting through March, April, May mm. and June. And then it collapses and looks terrible. And you mustn't cut it until September. So you, nobody points that out. And if you're in a small garden and this is all you're looking at, I'm not sure how many seasons you would actually hold your nerve and just go through <laughs> looking at all this terrible, soggy mess. Because that was where all this sort of perennial planting went slightly wrong. I remember Peter Udolf's first garden, which was done for John, the great um, nurseryman, another name that's uh, gone. But anyway, what Pete didn't realise uh, fully in his choice of plants, which he had used very successfully, of course, in the Netherlands, was that here we are much wetter and things like monada we don't use for good reason because they all got mildewed. <laughs> and um, also all these grasses that are supposed to stand frost-rimed through the winter, they don't, they just, just collapse. collapse. horrible <laughs> heaps. <laughs> and so, you know, these things that work very mm. well in the drier sort of central European land masses like the Netherlands and like Germany just didn't actually quite have the same effect here. Of course, Pete's a clever man and he very quickly adjusted his palate, you know, when he was planting over here. But, um, you know, it does need spelling out that this is a, a sort of one season wonder, uh, the long grass, and it is magic. <laughs> but you've got to put up with the aftermath. <laughs> and finally, that lady in the front row here. Um, you obviously love your new garden, but do you see yourself staying there to the end of your days? We've got Helen Dillon, Mary Keane, amongst others, making new gardens. This is my new garden. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we left the but rectory. You've been there 18 years. Yes. Do you think um, you will stay? Will it see you out? Yeah. It's a rather grim, yeah. it's a rather grim yeah. question. Oh, we're always saying that to each other, my husband, like, oh, it'll see us out. Um, I think the thing was we recognised with the rectory that we couldn't stay there for mm. our old age, but that was more because of the demands of the house. It was an incredible place, mm. you know, basically Queen Anne, but with an awful lot of other stuff. It had a 13th century dovecot, it had a lovely um, stables, 18th century, it had a beautiful folly of the sort of, you know, early 19th century. It was just the upkeep of the stuff that we couldn't mm. face doing all over again. It took us 15 years to do it first time round. So we left primarily because of that. This place, um, we knew, it's only four miles away, and it's the place that we most love to walk. It's the end of a no-through track. Um, it is becoming more evident um, that things like balance are you know, something you really have to start thinking about, especially on steep slopes. 
and I can no longer take my one end of the railway sleeper, as I always used to be able to do. That was a shock when I bent down to pick up my end. My husband got his end, and I couldn't lift it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a tricky question, and I think a very um, hard one, because who knows what life has in store. I'm at this stage of my life where I'm surrounded, sadly, and I mean surrounded by friends who have dementia, who have Parkinson's, you know, who have all these ghastly degenerative diseases of old age. And you just say, when me, you know? So I think it's in the lap of the gods. What I hope is that I'll fall over in the top field and break my neck. What would be better? Yes. <laughs> and then compost. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> There is the most magic view up there, and I will just end on something that makes me say I couldn't leave that place. I couldn't leave that place. It was my birthday last Monday, and it was the night of the full moon. It was a harvest moon. I looked up moonrise, 7.30, so I said to my husband, let's put something with bubbles in a basket with something, a little thing to eat, and two deck chairs, there's a sign of age, um, <laughs> up to the top field and watch the moon rise. And so we went up to the top field, put our two chairs there, looking out over, back down onto our house and beyond the sea. And then we walked up the slight slope and stood there, and the moon was coming up, just, just getting above Egerton, which is one of the most amazing Celtic hill forts. We can see eight Celtic hill forts from our top field. And there was this vast great globe, orange, looking at us. And if you just did that, you could see the sunset streaked out across the sea in brilliant, brilliant, brilliant red lines. And I just thought, this is the ultimate. On this that wonderful note, yeah. I think we should end. Thank you so much, Anna.